They are trying to make this a policy fight, when in fact it's an ideological one. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine, The Bradcast, The Trumpcast, Democracy Now!, Primary Concerns from The New Republic, The Zero Hour, The Majority Report, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and The Young Turks. Despite the unpopularity of Obamacare, it seems like Obamacare really changed America. Yeah, I I mean, I do think it created this expectation level that the government uh, is not going to be a a laissez-faire player in the healthcare market. We're going to work to make sure that you have access to affordable coverage. And once you lay down that marker, I mean, in 1993, Bill Kristol sent this memo talking about uh, Clinton's uh, attempt to do universal health care. And he said, we have to stop this because once you get that expectation, uh, the public is, is going to demand it. And that's exactly what we're seeing play out. So, you know, maybe a stop clock being right twice a day. Bill Kristol was right. He, he, he This was an, an, a, a, a way in which the, the system changed. And it changed for Democrats and Republicans, by the way, because Democrats, should they get back into power, are going to have to come up, you know, deal with this expectation level. And if the coverage is too expensive, like like some say with Obamacare, if the deductibles are too expensive, the out-of-pocket costs, they're going to have to deal with that and move towards a system that maybe expands coverage more uh, to more people and has even more federal involvement. So I think it it, it was a, a, a way in which the, the sort of social safety net was expanded and the expectation was granted. And now politicians have to live up to that. Back when this was all getting started, we wanted single payer plan like Medicare for all. That's not going to happen right now. But do you think it's in the future anytime? Now that Obamacare has really set this expectation and 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 now that the the public really has a, a, a need and, and a belief that they, you know, have this, that they get universal coverage, that they get good, affordable coverage. I think that's one way that you can see it being done. And interestingly, even in his sort of exit interviews, President Obama has said, well, one way you can fix Obamacare is with a public option. One way you can do it is with a Medicare buy-in at 55. And once you nibble along the edges, you you have people up to 26 on their parents plan. You have uh, Medicare maybe goes from 65 to 55 and then you nibble that down and people can buy into Medicare. Uh, if you burn that candle at both ends, eventually you get a single payer system. Who's got a light he's hiding under a bushel friends? Who wants to help me burn my candle at both ends? It's possible. like to play with fire as Satan recommends who wants to help me burn my candle at both ends writing over at Huffington Post today Ryan Graham and Matt Fuller report things are not going well on the very first day after the introduction of the uh, GOP house plan to repeal and replace Obamacare 
at least among folks who call themselves conservatives up on Capitol Hill and among the various right-wing organizations which support them. The Republican Study Committee, an influential group of House conservatives, Grimm and Fuller Wright, called it a Republican welfare entitlement. Conservative advocacy groups, Freedom Works, a major force on the right, put it simply, this is Obamacare light. Over at Breitbart News, the lodestar of the Trump administration, readers variously dubbed it Ryan Care, Obamacare 2.0, Soros Care. I don't really Soros. How? Why is this his fault? Uh, or for the uh, or for the wonks, the unearned income tax credit too. Wow, that's not going well. Here with the latest from Capitol Hill and the quickly emerging pushback from the right against House Speaker Paul Ryan's repeal and replace plan for the Affordable Care Act, which Republicans are calling the American Health Care Act, is Ryan Grimm, Washington Post Bureau Chief. I'm sorry, Washington Bureau Chief for Huffington Post. Uh, Hey, welcome back to the broadcast, Ryan, on what I suspect is, uh, well, just another crazy day on Capitol Hill. A lot of fun. A lot of fun today. <laughs> okay, I bet it is. All right. So uh, w- uh, what's the big complaint from conservatives? We've talked about uh, some of the details in this plan. What's the big complaint about uh, uh, from conservatives about Paul Ryan's plan? And uh, frankly, Ryan, why wasn't all of this worked out in the, uh, oh, you know, last seven or eight years <laughs> that they've all been pretending that Obamacare is a disaster? Well, like you said, because they're pretending. I mean, people have to... And also, they didn't think they were going to win the election. Uh, they didn't think they were going to catch this car that they've been chasing chasing down the road. You have to remember that Obama. the problem for them is that Obamacare itself was basically designed by the Heritage Foundation right. years ago. Right. And then, you know, it became Romney Care, and it worked pretty well and well enough in Massachusetts. And, and so then it went national and became Obamacare. So it's almost unfair them to try to come up with an alternative to the thing that they developed themselves. But, you know, they're the ones who disavowed their original plan, so it's not that unfair. But their essential objection today is that Brian's plan isn't really, in principle, any different than Obamacare. It is replacing uh, tax credits that go to subsidize health care with tax credits that go to subsidize health care. The only difference is that Paul Ryan's tax credits are a little bit stingier, which I'm sure on a spectrum of things that conservatives would support is is in the direction they'd prefer to go. But when they've spent the last six years making an argument about principle, mm-hmm. that Obamacare is, is destroying freedom, right. then just kind of trimming it a little bit here and there uh, and renaming the tax credit uh, doesn't, doesn't you know, resolve your your principled problem that you have with the bill. You uh, you quote in your piece uh, today at Huffington Post, uh, David McIntosh. He's the president of Club for Growth. Uh, he calls this Ryan Care and a, uh, a warmed over substitute for government run health care. Now, I, I, I don't know what David McIntosh thinks, but do these folks in the in the Freedom Caucus when they call it government run health care? Now that they're in charge of coming up with something better, in theory. Do they still believe it's government-run healthcare? Are they getting high on their own supply? Do they believe this stuff? These, these, you know, these Frank Luntzian uh, phrases at this point. How, how, how aware are they that you know they've been spending the last eight years uh, pushing forward BS? The actual rank and file members here. I mean, well, 
question. Um, to their credit, uh, they are making the argument that they have consistently said X about Obamacare. Uh-huh. Uh, Paul Ryan's bill has the same attributes as Obamacare. Therefore, X applies to Paul Ryan's <laughs> bill. So, you know, they could have done some intellectual twist and said that these tax credits are not the same as the other tax credits and that these are kind of freedom-inspiring and incentivizing tax credits while the others were freedom-crushing tax credits. Uh, But, you know, to their credit, they didn't do that. They said, look, this is the same thing. Who are you trying to fool? Uh, Let me... uh... Let me get a sense from you, uh, Ryan. Uh, we've got just another minute or two here, but I, I, you know, okay. So these people uh, in the Freedom Caucus, I don't know that uh, many of them are too terribly bright necessarily. They may have bought their own nonsense, but certainly these groups, Heritage Foundation, uh, you know, the Koch Brothers, Americans for Prosperity, they know what's going on. How does, for example, Heritage? How do they justify uh, their complaints to their own plan? You noted that, you know, the the, uh, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was initially a heritage plan idea. What do they say now? What is their complaint about what became their own plan? Well, the original one is down the memory hole by now. Right. Um, The way they justified it the first go-round was that was a state plan, and we're for states' rights, and we're for... um, Um. you know, we're for laboratories of innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't mean for this to be a federal thing. <laughs> now, you know, we, we didn't not mean terribly for persuasive, yeah. but it's like, you know, you, you, there aren't a lot of good rationales to offer when you do a 180 on your own plan. So, you know, I guess that's, that's probably the best. If I were, you know, hired as a consultant <laughs> to figure out something uh. to how to flip completely on your own plan and that's that's about the best that you're going to do but now they just ignore the fact that it was a heritage plan yeah you know, it's like t- 12 years ago now uh, well, who can yeah who can remember who, who, that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 12 years. do do you get the sense that uh that the opposition now from those groups that that is is that real uh, uh, for them, for the for the groups, the Heritage Foundation, Americans for Prosperity, or or is this just a essentially a negotiating tactic that they'll eventually go with some kind of plan, if only to avoid the embarrassment of being able to? That goes back to what we were originally talking about. There is no plan that I can see that both wins the support of fifty one senators or fifty plus Mike Pence, and also. Uh, enough members of the Freedom Caucus to get through the House. Like, I don't, I don't see where that plan is. I mean, this plan right now that's on the table is too far to the right to get past the Senate, and it's not far enough to the right to get past the House. So if you move it left, you still don't get through the House. If you move it right, you're already screwed in the Senate, so now you're even more screwed in the Senate. So I don't see that. I don't see it.
let's talk about Trump care. Could you perhaps for our listeners kind of just describe what it is and how it differs from the Affordable Care Act? What it is is a great question, actually. <laughs> so the American Health Care Act, uh, it is a bill written, as far as we can tell, literally in the office of Paul Ryan. Uh, it does not it does not really have the committee process behind it, the normal congressional process behind it, you would expect. It also, by the way, did not come from the Trump administration. Trump very quickly threw his support behind it. But this is not something that Secretary Tom Price created. It did not come out of the White House. Uh, it, it came out of Ryan Ryan's office, changed a lot right before it dropped and has dropped to a very cold reception from from both liberals and conservatives. The the bill itself is a little bit strangely constructed. They are trying to do something very difficult, which is keep the bill in a particular Senate process called or congressional process, really called budget reconciliation. The upside of budget reconciliation is it means you can pass something with 51 votes. So you cannot have a Senate filibuster act against reconciliation. The downside of it is that for something to be part of the budget reconciliation process, which was built for budgets, that's why it has that name, it really every every specific provision has to be primarily related to changing spending or taxing. That is the test the parliamentarian applies. And what that's meant is that a lot of what we do in healthcare reform, uh, no matter which side is doing it, is insurance regulation, is saying that insurers can, you know, not do this or they have to do that. You, you're telling private market actors how to run their business. That is not considered material to the budget. That is not something you are doing to change the the taxation or spending of the U.S. federal budget. And so Republicans have had to have a bill that actually does not change the bulk of Obamacare's insurance market regulations. It keeps lifetime limits. It keeps the essential benefits. It keeps tons of things Republicans have been complaining about forever. What it does take away, and, and this is important, is it takes away the individual mandate. And it replaces it with something similar but less effective called continuous coverage, where if you stop having, uh, if you stop having insurance, whenever you come back, you get a 30% surcharge for one year, which, uh, healthcare experts think is going to be a big incentive if you're healthy not to buy insurance until you get sick. So that can make death spirals a lot worse. But then the two really, really big things it does, and this is a core of everything. Obamacare has two ways that it subsidizes insurance for people. One is Medicaid. And on the Medicaid side, what the Republican plan does is it allows states to sign up and enroll people in Medicaid until 2020. And then not just freezes that, but if one of those people gets too much money and is off Medicaid for three months or they forget to sign a form, they can't get back on. So it freezes it and then tries to roll it back through total through attrition of the program. But the other thing it does is it cuts the Medicaid program in the long term hugely. I think if I'm remembering the numbers right, by somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight hundred billion dollars. So over 10 years, the Congressional Budget Office says that's going to kick 14 million people, 14 million people off of Medicaid. The second thing it does is that Obamacare subsidies in the private market are tied to two things, and people don't always realize this. They know the subsidies are tied to income, which is true, but they're also tied to the cost of a plan in your local area. So the way the subsidy is calculated is we basically, the law basically says, you, Jamel, make X amount of money, and we want that to cover Y percentage of a plan wherever you live. And that's really important because the cost of an insurance plan in Washington, D.C. is different than in L.A., is different than in rural Alaska, is different, is different than in suburban Miami, in the suburbs of Miami. And so 
you have basically a subsidy structure that really guarantees that if you don't have that much money, you can afford a plan. The Republican plan wipes that out and it moves to just flat age-based credits. You get one amount of money if you're 30 years old. You get another amount of money for 60 years old, a higher amount of money. And it does not matter how much money you make and it does not matter how much a plan near you costs. If that tax credit cannot buy you a plan, you just don't get a plan. So the tax credits are over time about half the value of Obamacare's tax credits in addition to not varying by how much money people make or how much you need to spend to get health insurance. So when you put all this together, the Congressional Budget Office, which are the, the big scorekeepers here, they came out with an estimate of what the plan will do that is as singularly devastating a document as I've ever seen in American politics. They said it would, over 10 years, kick 24 million, 24 million people off of health insurance. That is how many fewer people to have health insurance. 24 million, just to put it in perspective, it's more people than live in New York State. It's more people than live in Australia. We are creating an uninsured <laughs> population the size of Australia. And it's more people than Obamacare covered in the time it's been in place, right? It says closer to 20 million people. No, so the, I think by the end of this period, Obamacare would have been expected to be covering, if I remember, 32 million people. Oh, all right. So because we're, we're projecting out into the future here. But so this is a really bad score. And so on the one hand, you have conservatives who are looking at this plan and they say, hey, this creates a new tax credit based middle class entitlement. Why are we as conservatives voting? Voting to give somebody who makes $50,000 a tax credit forever. Um, that's not the government's role. So that's like the Freedom Caucus problem. Then you have what my colleague Andrew Prokop calls the Coverage Caucus, which are – there are Republicans, many of them, who believe – Either that people should be covered or at the very least believe they do not want to be running for election having voted to take coverage away from tens of millions of people. That's your Susan Collins, your Lisa Murkowski's, that group of folks. And so on the one hand, you've got a bunch of Republicans who think this thing is not conservative enough. On the other hand, a bunch of Republicans who think this thing is an insane political suicide mission. And then in the middle of all that, pretty much every major Republican think tank has come out against this bill because it is just constructed like garbage. It just <laughs> The thing was not well built. They did not wait for CBO scores. They did not get enough input. They're not running it through a real committee process where it's getting worked on and fixed and evaluated. The whole thing, it, it is so bad that a lot of people have speculated to me that Ryan wants this to fail. Paul Ryan wants it to fail. I do not think that is true, but it is hard to come up with what has created such a slipshod piece of legislation and such a fearful, cowardly, hypocritical, and fundamentally, on a policy level, ineffective process. A startling new report from the Congressional Budget Office is projecting 24 million Americans will lose health insurance coverage by 2026 under the Republican plan to replace the Affordable Care Act. 14 million people will lose health insurance in the next year alone. Just hours before the CBO report was released, President Trump claimed the Republican plan would ensure health care access for all. Now, I have to tell you, it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. While the White House rejected the CBO findings, Politico is reporting the White House's own analysis predicts 26 million people will lose coverage under the bill over the next decade. 
The CBO also found that premiums would initially skyrocket for some Americans under the Republican plan. The agency said a 64-year-old making around $26,000 a year would see their premiums jump 700 percent from $1,700 under Obamacare to over $14,000 a year under the Republican bill. But the CBO said premiums would eventually decrease for most Americans. On Monday, House Speaker Paul Ryan stunned Fox News host Brett Baer when he described the CBO's findings as encouraging. Reaction on these numbers and what they mean. Well, actually, I think if you read this entire report, I'm pretty encouraged by it, and it actually exceeded my expectations. Mr. Speaker, if you're encouraged by this CBO report, what's a CBO report you're discouraged by? <laughs> oh, I've seen a lot. I've been reading them all half my life. But the point I'm saying is what CBO did was they validated. We are block granting Medicaid back to the states, saving $880 billion right there. This is an $883 billion tax cut for families and small businesses that helps lower their health care costs. And it saves money and reduces the deficit. So that's really good on all those points. House Speaker Paul Ryan went on to praise the cost savings in the House bill. According to the CBO, the bill would reduce the deficit by $337 billion. But one of the biggest beneficiaries of the Republican bill will be millionaires. According to new research by the Tax Policy Institute, people in the top 0.1 percent would get a tax cut of about $207,000 under the plan. U.S. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi accused Republicans of attempting to push through the biggest transfer of wealth in the nation's history. The CBO has reported that the Republican bill pushes 24 million people out of health care off of health coverage. This is a remarkable figure. It speaks so eloquently to the cruelty of the bill that the speaker calls an act of mercy. I don't know if he thinks it's an act of mercy to all the people who will lose coverage, to people who will lose jobs, to the hospitals uh, that may have to close down, especially in rural areas. I don't know if he thinks it's an act of mercy to people on opioid addiction and other addictions who are looking to Medicaid as an answer, as many of Republican governors have spoken to. This is, okay, so they're taking 24 million people, pushing them off their coverage. And as they do so, they are in, uh, implementing the biggest transfer of wealth in our history. $600 billion going from working families to the richest people and corporations in our country. Just hours before the CBO report was released, President Trump claimed the Republican plan would ensure health care access for all. The House plan will expand choice, lower costs, and ensure health care access for all. We're negotiating with everybody. It's a big, fat, beautiful negotiation. And hopefully we'll come up with something that's going to be really terrific. I want to thank Paul Ryan and, and everybody, uh, Mitch, everybody. They're all working round the clock. And I think ultimately uh, the big beneficiary will be the American people. We'll end up with a really great health care plan. We're also going to send Congress a budget request that will include one of the largest increases to defense spending in our history.
We're joined here in a very snowy New York by Elizabeth Benjamin. She's vice president of health initiatives at the Community Service Society of New York and co-founder of Healthcare for All. Uh, welcome to Democracy Now!, Elizabeth. Your assessment of the Republican plan and this uh, really explosive assessment by the Congressional Budget Office. I mean, it's simply devastating for low-income people and for working people. The, what they're going to do is rob $880 billion from the Medicaid program. They're going to rob $673 million in tax, carrying, tax um, credits and subsidies from middle and working income people and pay for tax cuts to the very wealthy in the order of around $600 billion. So it's just these are extraordinary numbers. Um, I don't think people understand that 41 percent of the people on Medicaid are children. The remainder are elderly people with disabilities and very low-income wage earners. Um, I was helping a woman recently who work, used to work in a, a, a very high-end um, uh, uh, department store, and now she got a bad knee from standing up so much in her department store work, and then now works in a coffee shop. And she makes around $16,000 a year. She's on Medicaid. Medicaid has saved her life. She's been able to get the treatment for her knee, and she's been able to keep working. She's in her 50s. If she were to, she is going to go from having free health care on Medicaid that's helping low-wage workers to a $16,000 health insurance plan. It's insane. And you can't afford, basically, to pay what you earn. However, wealthy people will be getting an incredible tax cut. So the Peterson Institute for International Economics just released a, a statement saying people who make $1 million will be getting a $12,900 tax cut, while the people who are earning $26,000 who are older will be getting a 12000 insurance rate hike. This is not fair, it's not right, and it's unethical. So let's go to Health and Human Services Secretary Dr. Tom Price speaking on Monday. You just look at the numbers. Uh, there are 8 million people, 8, 9 million people who are on the exchange currently. I'm not sure how they're going to get to 14 million people uninsured, if that's what they say, with only 8 million people on the exchange. There are individuals, I guess, that they assume that are on Medicaid who aren't paying anything in the Medicaid system who are going to not take Medicaid system, take the Medicaid uh, policy just because the, the mandate ended or, the, or, or something happened, uh, it, just is, it's just not believable is, the, is, is what we would suggest. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at the numbers and, and, and see. So that's Dr. Tom Price. I mean, that just shows a shocking level of ignorance for our highest health official in the country. I mean, what they are doing is robbing money from the Medicaid program, robbing money from the states. They're incentivizing states to cut people off of Medicaid. Instead of being looked at the eligibility once a year, they're changing it to every six months. Instead of letting people have retroactive Medicaid, if they get into a, get an accident, go into a coma, it goes backwards for a month while you were in a coma, they're getting rid of that. They're basically incentivizing the states to cut off Medicaid for low-income and working people. And we will have no more Medicaid program for them. So the fact that he doesn't understand how the numbers were derived by the Congressional Budget Office, by the way, which were rosier than the White House's own numbers, 
He's in the White House. Can't he read the reports? I find that just a shocking display of ignorance. Unless that's in, that's his intention. Well, or unless they're just simply pretending, I mean, to obscure facts, which is, seems to be the plan here. But the bottom line is, is real people will get hurt, like my waitress, like children, like seniors, people in nursing homes. It's really an unconscionable bill. So talk about a 20-year-old and a 60-year-old and what's going to happen to sure. them. A 20-year-old. So now we're, we're moving from Medicaid for a second to what's happening in the marketplaces. So we're talking about people with a little more income, say around $16,000 a year and above. What will happen to a 20-year-old who is earning around $18,000 is they will get a $2,000 tax credit. Now they're able to buy a plan that costs $150. So they're going to be a net winner. So that will incentivize. And this is what they're trying to do is incentivize more young people to get into the health insurance market. Not a bad idea on its face to incentivize young people to get into the marketplace, but their means are pernicious and evil. The 60-year-old will have to pay right now, who's making the same amount of money, around $20,000, will be asked to pay five times more because they're going to allow age rating, which means they're going to say, if you're older, you have to pay five times more than a younger person. They're not going to base it on income anymore. Before, it was like you pay as much as you can up to set amounts up to 400 percent of poverty. Now they're saying, forget about your income and how much you can afford. Everybody has to pay the same amount. And P.S., if you're older, you have to pay five times more. I want to turn to House Speaker Paul Ryan on Sunday, speaking to Face the Nation. He said he doesn't know how many Americans will lose coverage under the health care proposal. I can't answer that question. It's up to people. Here's the premise of your question. Are you going to stop mandating people buy health insurance? People are going to do what they want to do with their lives because we believe in individual freedom in this country. So the question is, are we providing a system where people have access to health insurance if they choose to do so? And the answer is yes. But are we going to have some nice looking spreadsheet that says we, the government of the American, of the United States are going to make people buy something and therefore they're all going to buy it? No. That's so, the fatal conceit of Obamacare in the first place. So it's not our job to make people do something that they don't want to do. It is our job to have a system where people can get universal access to affordable coverage if they choose to do so or not. That's what we're going to be accomplishing. So House Speaker Ryan says it's all about choice, except when it comes to choice and reproductive rights. Well, it's not about choice because they're basically going to guarantee that health insurance premiums will be unaffordable for older people. You know, when people were asked what they didn't like about the Affordable Care Act, it was they had copays and deductibles. This bill is a guarantee that it's a race to the bottoms. Deductibles will be even higher. Copays will be larger and they're going to allow it. The Affordable Care Act set standards for what health, what good health insurance would be. Now, you could buy lower quality insurance. You could buy higher quality insurance. You had choice, but, and you arguably have, you know, had lots of subsidies for people who really needed it. What's happening here is they're giving a transfer of wealth to very well income people, very well off people who don't need it. And they're basically robbing it from low income people, people on Medicaid, seniors, people with disabilities and the working poor and middle income people. And it's just not right. And we have to say no. I saw you speaking to hundreds of people people on Sunday here in New York City, something you've been doing a lot, sometimes a thousand people pack into a hall to really understand what this is all about. And one of the descriptions of this was wealth care, not health care. That's about right. Um, you know, I, it's, it's just 
I think we are at a point as a country where we have to decide who we really are. And if we're really about enabling the super rich to be richer at the expense of vulnerable populations like children, old people, people with disabilities, and the working poor, who, by the way, aren't getting things necessarily for free, they're having to pay what they can, it's just that's the Affordable Care Act. That is a fair and just system of health care. It's not perfect. We can make it better. But this is making it, it's throwing it away and offering and substituting it with something much worse that's going to really hurt real people. I will let you down. Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, who make incredible home cooking more attainable than ever. Because for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. So no more overspending at restaurants or high-end grocery stores. With Blue Apron, you can prepare delicious, memorable meals yourself in under 40 minutes. Plus, they're super flexible. You can get meals for two or four with the menu restrictions of your choice all delivered on the day of your choice. Plus, all the benefits of being a bit adventurous in the kitchen and having home-cooked meals with your family. Just a couple of the meals available in March include salmon piccata with orzo and broccoli and vegetable chili with baked sweet potatoes and crispy tortilla chips. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash best. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash best. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. You are someone else. I am still right here. The rancor and the divisions they have over healthcare and, and the lack of expertise is sort of papers over um, a fair amount of agreement, right? Like there's a reason the prescription drug benefit looks like it does and why Medicare Advantage looks like it does and why Paul Ryan's proposed Medicare reforms look like they do. Like they like the idea of devolving, you know, n not of necessarily pulling the government fully out of the business of helping people finance healthcare. Um, but if you're going to do it, Spend less money on it, route the, the financing through private companies and, you know, kind of make the people who are benefiting from it sell their iPhones, basically, like put skin in the game. Um, and you could do things right to in the course of, a, of, a, of an Obamacare reform that gradually tried to merge all of that into one giant system, right? Like where you had. You had a, a a Medicare with 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 more of a, a private competition aspect to it, and a, you know catastrophic insurance kind of undergirding the um, the whole the whole system, and and you know you could auto enroll people into that, and um, and and just have a, just a seamless uh, cloth of of you know mandate subsidize regulate healthcare for the government at much less cost, but it would take twenty years to phase that in. But they're not even trying. W whatever animated their their total war against Obamacare was very fateful because I feel like it limited the strategic options available to them, right? Like um, they made so many false depictions of the law and where they didn't make false depictions, they kind of promised things uh, that, that they could make things better, right? So you had Obamacare is going to destroy freedom, but it also doesn't do anything 
to or it also makes deductibles too high. So they're going to repeal Obamacare to restore the freedom, but also make sure deductibles are lower. Like these things are are heavily intentioned, but that's the only approach that that like meshes with the total war opposition model. Right. And so now they're in this corner where they can't do anything considered, because if you're being considered about what you're doing, then you're you're not responsive to the emergency that you've said Obamacare is. Um, but you're also uh, unable to do anything that fixes the the you know the actual shortcomings of the law, like that that some people can't afford their their deductibles. Um, and I, I just feel like if you could reverse the clock, and if they could go about Obamacare opposition in a more above board way. It would actually, in, in some ways, be worse for us Obamacare supporters because they would have the ideological and political space they need right now to implement something slower burning, more considered, and would actually have a, a chance to succeed. But they basically have like this, you know, one strike option where they either get it done and implement this probably unworkable alternative or they get nothing. Yeah, you know, I think that's all correct. And and I, it's funny, I don't know if you've noticed this, but just paying attention to the um, statements that people like Paul Ryan and uh, McConnell and all the leaders in the House and Mike Pence, not so much Trump. Trump's an interesting figure in all this. And we, we're running out of time, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's like, put him aside, but all the other Republican leaders. The thing they keep saying, and really just more and more, I feel like, and maybe I'm just listening for it, but I feel like in the last week or two or three, as the kind of opposition is built and it's looked harder and harder to get this through, um, they keep talking about the fact that we made a promise, that word, it's a promise, it's a promise to repeal Obamacare. Right, like promises are inviolable in the Trump yes. era. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, some of that I, I think is a, is, a, is, a, is a statement about politics, right? It's like, because you don't want to go back on a promise, voters will punish you. you know, particularly in conservative politics, you don't want to go back on this promise, you'll get primaried by a Tea Party candidate. But I also think there is a kind of, we said we were going to do this, and so we're going to do this. And we may not remember why we said we were going to do this, or the reasons we said we were going to do this may turn out to be flimsier than we thought, and our solution may turn out to be really, really bad and not in any way similar to what we promised. But we promised it, so we're going to do it. And, and, and I almost feel like, you know, and, and it's in a similar way. And, and why did they promise to do it? Because they were against Obamacare, because they were against it when it started, because they were never going to be part of this. And it was going to be the defining element of their politics to oppose this and wipe it off the books from the day Barack Obama took the oath of office. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if they were in a more moderate place, they probably could, you know, I would think their prospects of getting something done would be bigger. Um, you know, and the, the sad thing is, I, I truly believe this, that if you put sort of, you know, serious people on left and right in a room and said, look, this law has accomplished the following things, we can all agree, you know, millions of people got health insurance and, 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 and we know they're getting better access to care and we know that, you know, they're more financially secure and, and, and we all want that. You know, so we all think that's good. We, we, you know, and we can say, and there's some other good things in the law. At the same time, we can all agree that, you know, the markets are not stable in some states. They clearly are not. Um, we can agree that there's, you know, there's some people who are now in a situation where they're paying a lot more for insurance or, you know, because the insurance is so expensive, they've had to switch to skimpier plans. And these are not rich people. These are middle class people 
Um, they're not doing so well with this system. You know, this system has elements as conservatives we don't like. Liberals we have has elements liberals don't like. Let's sit down. Let's 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 put down our list of what we like, how we'd like to, what we would change, and let's find five items on each we can both put together. And you know that it, that would you know a normal political environment would not be that hard to do. Uh, you can imagine a system that actually both sides would feel good about because they'd be getting something they liked even if they were giving up something. It would probably fix a lot of the problems. You know, that would not be hard to do if you had a Republican Party that I think was committed to governing and acting in the way that you just described uh, and, you know, was willing to kind of put down the pitchforks and, you know, sort of make this work and move on to other things. But that's not where we are. Your sentence is the continuous coverage provision. And now that's the provision that says if you have an interruption in your health insurance and you want to go back on health insurance, then you have to pay 30% more than you would have paid otherwise for a year. You say the continuous coverage provision offers a perverse incentive to the young and healthy to sign up for coverage only when they get sick. So why is that? Well, because you don't uh, incur the penalty unless you try to purchase coverage again. Mm -hmm. And so the people who feel like they're going to be healthy in in their daily lives uh, are not going to sign up if they didn't get, you know, if they were blocked from coverage for a certain amount of time, they're, they're not going to have to go back until they get sick because it, it, this, this bill, because of the way it's being done, retains this concept of, uh, you know, you cannot be denied coverage for a pre-existing condition. So you can get coverage whenever you want and you only get penalized for not having coverage when you try to get it. So if you just do the math, uh, if you're a healthy person, you're not going to get coverage unless you're sick. And uh, what that means is the risk pool of those insured is going to be far sicker. And that makes it very difficult uh, for insurance companies to really survive. Uh, and right. and, and what, uh, this is commonly known as a death spiral. Right, right. And now I, I was one who felt that even, uh, first of all, I hated the individual mandate since I'm an old lefty who thinks that, you know, you should fund these things through progressive taxation in the end. But but uh, to me, this, I understood why it was done uh, actuarially and so on. But to me, this is even worse because as I predicted and as we saw, and I think you probably predicted it too, even the, the tax penalty for not getting insurance under the Affordable Care Act wasn't enough to prevent the kind of adverse selection you're talking about. This is going to be I think that much worse. And by the way, also, the money doesn't go to the government to fund.
fund healthcare initiatives. It goes to the insurance companies themselves. But as you say, it probably won't right. be enough to make up for the risk. Well, so that's the extreme irony of this whole thing: that if you pay a penalty to the government, it's tyranny. But if you pay a penalty to a private health insurance corporation, it's liberty. I, I, I don't <laughs> understand how that works, but. Uh, you're absolutely right. This is kind of the worst of all possible worlds. I mean, single payer is a mandate, right? Single payer says that everybody is going to be covered and we solve the, the problem of who pays by having everybody pay through progressive taxation. Uh, the, the, this thing is uh, there's no mandate unless you get sick, which just guarantees a, a sicker group of people who are insured which uh, guarantees rising prices uh, because there's no cap on prices necessarily. There's this sort of age band between the old and the new, which actually grows under the Republican plan. Uh, ARP is calling it an age tax. But, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and the, the, the 30% penalty, of course, what's bigger than 30% of $100? 30% of $200. So even that, is an incentive towards rising the price because the penalty will be higher as you increase the price. Right. So uh, by every measure, this is going to mean higher premiums, higher deductibles, higher copays, uh, and a sicker population within that insurance market of the individual market, which is going to make it hard for that market to survive. I wish I had the time. Here is Douglas Elmdorf. He was the former CBO director under uh, Obama, I believe. Cock. And he was on CBS News on Tuesday, basically laying out what what the what the problem is. I mean, you know, on one hand, you have Paul Ryan saying, like, look, who gets covered is not the gold standard. And of course, um, Tom Price basically saying the best thing about this plan, we're going to cover so many more people. <laughs> then the numbers come out. And they're out there going, well, CBO is off by uh, 60%. Can I just make one tangential note? What I love is like with someone like Tom Price, all these guys are liars, well-versed liars and experienced. But when you get into that Trump orbit, you st I like how even a guy like Price starts lying like him. Because I played well, the clip yesterday. It's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. No, it's well, gonna, And it's like. When did you start lying in that you, specific fashion? You not only have a license to do that. You got to emulate have, the boss. You have, you are basically compelled to do that. That's right. I don't like subtle lying. Yeah. What are you doing? Big picture lying. Why are you hemming and hawing? Just say it. <laughs> Just say it. It's like when so, I write on the bank statement, it's wrong. Here's Elmendorf basically saying that this bill doesn't even seem to pretend to do what, um, the president and the administration claimed they were going to do. Well, I think the speaker is right. This is a large tax cut for higher income people, and it is a large cutback in benefits for lower income people. And that is an aspect of entitlement reform we have not seen. We haven't seen it 
because it's not very politically popular. Remember, the president promised everybody would be taken care of and that he would not cut Medicaid. Secretary Price said yesterday that he thought nobody would be worse off. So this legislation directly contradicts their assertions about the policy they're aiming for. And that's the tension Republicans have. If you want to cut taxes by a lot, and the taxes in the ACA were mostly leveled at higher-income people, then you have to cut benefits by a lot, and they're doing that. I mean, this is the problem the Republicans are running into, is that they are trying to make this a policy fight, when in fact it's an ideological one. And they won't cop to the ideological fight that's going on here. And and look, it's I happen to disagree with it, but it is a position that one could hold that the government should in no way do anything to ensure or encourage or I guess, discourage anybody from getting health insurance. But it's not government's job to make sure that its citizens are healthy. But of course, when Rand Paul actually does articulate that, then he's messing up the messaging. Well, yes, yeah. of course. I yeah. mean, and the, because they're pretending this is, we, get, we got a better way of doing it. Right. Oh, the better, literally. Right. A better way. A better way. A better way. We're going to give all the money back to wealthy people and we're still going to provide this service and cut the budget it'll trickle down trickle down health care trickle down health yeah trickle down. see what happens is is that when a rich person can remove a tumor the extract of that tumor circulates in the economy i think what you're missing is mm. when you go to someone when you meet somebody who's like a happy person it improves your immune system don't you yep <laughs> but don't you feel a little happier no, it literally does. This, right, so, this is like mirror neurons. So, I like that. You're doing like new age sociopathic republicanism. I dig exactly. it. Exactly. I could see Ryan being like that. When you when you see someone who has a smile on their face, that's more effective than any medicine in the world. It's proven. The, the, the Egyptians knew this, which is why they had to deal with the aliens. The only thing, the only thing that the peasants are going to have to learn is to be able to capture a vision of someone healthy as they drive by in their town car. <laughs> it's, be it's called the Don't Worry, Be Happy plan. Now there's a health plan for people who can't stand paperwork. A plan with no copays. A plan with no monthly premiums. A plan with no real health care of any kind. Introducing the Luck Health Plan. No actual health coverage. There's literally nothing to it. That's what I call freedom. It's called the Luck Plan for a reason. It's based entirely on luck. I just cross my fingers and hope for the best. The Luck Health Plan. You'll be okay, probably.
The reason that we're stuck with the hybrid system that is the ACA, the very flawed hybrid system that is the ACA, is because the stakeholders who were not the taxpayers were able to buy their legislators and have them, you know, insert the clauses and the um, must-haves and the ultimatums into the deal to get it to a point that they would support it. And it's, I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's a poison pill. If you're the insurance companies, for example, looking at this, you win either way. You win if you get the ACA and, you know, you get essentially uh, guaranteed profits by the government and all the various things that were put into that, you win. If the ACA becomes too expensive and everybody's mad about the cost and everything and they want to go back to the way things were, well, then you win because you were winning under the way things were. Making sure that no matter what happens, you win is exactly what your lobbyist should be doing for you if you're sitting down at a strategy session on K Street saying, okay, here's my worry. And they're going to say, well, listen, here's what we'll do. And either outcome favors you, okay? Again, boom, that's what you pay those people for. If they do a good job, that's what they tell you. If you do a good job working for your insurance companies, you lobby the legislators to do it that way. If you're one of the legislators who gets fat checks from the insurance companies for your reelection campaign, you see that it's done that way. I mean, that's how the system works, right? But then that's how you end up with what we have now, a patchwork system with interconnecting levers and gears that don't work very well now, but that if you take them away, you're just going to break an already flawed system. And and what are you offering instead? And here's the real question. Does what you're offering instead equal better health outcomes for the American people? If you can't answer that question with a resounding yes and explain your thinking, right, show your work on the math paper, well, then we shouldn't even be talking about reform because you don't have the best interest of the people who actually pay for all of this with their tax dollars in mind. Irish rail may be a scandal, although I thought it was a wonderful, if a little bit warm ride, but U.S. healthcare is a scandal because of the way those numbers add up on a piece of paper. There's no way you should be doing worse than every country on that list unless you're somehow providing a better service at the end, right? I'll pay more if we get more. We pay a lot more and we get a lot less and that's a scandal. It's incumbent upon the people that want to, and I'm using air quotes with my hands, fix healthcare to explain how they're going to improve all those things at the end user side of things, right? If they say something like, we're going to free you from having to buy insurance or getting a big penalty, really? Is that going to compensate you when you get sick, when you don't have something, when you – that's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. They may say that this benefits you if you're a fine, healthy person, but that's a temporary condition. As my dad said, to be so-called able-bodied is a temporary state of affairs, and then when you're not – You know, what sort of health care do you deserve? And since it's coming from your tax dollars anyway, let's ask it this way. You're paying into a system that eventually, unless you drop dead, you're going to also use. How nice and comprehensive do you want your care to be when you do? We'd be better off, ladies and gentlemen, and it would sure be easier to track the money. And you could get rid of all these things like making uh, uh, people have to sign up for health care, even if they're young and healthy, because otherwise the government will hit them with a huge penalty, you'd be better off having a dedicated tax fund. 
You really would. They just said, listen, all the money from this tax goes into this fund. That fund covers the cost of people walking into any doctor's office whenever they need to and getting treated. Ah, One, you'd be able to track the money. Two, you could get rid of all the onerous requirements. And you're probably thinking, that's the last thing I want, Dan, more taxes, you know, going to some other cause or the rat hole that is government and everything else. But if these other countries' results are to be believed, if you can pull this off the way they pull this off, your overall costs at the end of the day, when you sit down and figure what you have left over versus what you paid out over the year, you should be ahead because every one of those countries is ahead of us now. Here's the problem, folks. The problem is we keep focusing on something called health insurance. And, you know, the Republicans will use a great little weasel phrase. Watch the weasel phrases at all time from all politicians. But the weasel phrase in this whole you know, healthcare reform cycle we're going through now is access to insurance, right? We will make sure people have access to insurance. Access to insurance doesn't mean jack. Okay, people don't need access to insurance. They need health care. Insurance is supposed to be a means to pay for health care, access to a way to pay for something. I mean, there's a reason there's a lot of steps there. I mean, for example, the Republicans have made noise about keeping one of the very popular things in Obamacare, which is really, I mean, when you think about it, it's something you have to have for a health care system really to work. And yet it's something that destroys the idea that private insurance for health care is based on, Right. They need to be able to discriminate over the patients they take, right? This is a, an agreement, and the agreement is, okay, you're a good risk. We're a good coverage service. We like the odds here. Boom, boom, boom. But if you have to take every risk, even people you would never take before because they're bad risks, well, you have to make up for something like you know, that on the other side. So if the Republicans are going to really keep the mandate from the Obamacare ACA version of the plan that says that insurance companies can't deny you for having preconditions, then they're going to make that up through something else. And it's likely to be taking caps off what people can be charged and making sure that you say something like, listen, just because you had cancer five years ago, we'll make sure that you cannot be denied. You, you will have access to insurance because the healthcare companies will have to cover you. Yes, but they can charge you $19,000 a month. So it's there if you need it. You just can't reach it. So watch the weasel words.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Join the National Week of Action to Demand Medicare for All, April 3rd through the 7th. If you're tired of defending the problematic Affordable Care Act in the face of the devastating Trump care, then there is no better time to join the movement for improved Medicare for All. April 7th, 2017 has been designated the International Day of Action Against the Privatization of Healthcare. The grassroots organizations, People's Health Movement, and Health Over Profit for Everyone are calling for a week of actions leading up to April 7th under the banner, Our Health is Not for Sale. Health Over Profit for Everyone, or HOPE, is encouraging those who believe that privatization has no role in our health insurance to take part in a national call-in and write-in week from April 3rd to the 7th to tell Congress to take action now for National Improved Medicare for All. HOPE is also urging the organization of local actions around the date of April 7th when members of Congress will start their recess and will be home in their local districts. Some cities like Seattle, Washington, New York City, Washington, D.C., Columbia, Maryland, and Minocqua, Minnesota already have actions scheduled that you can join, but if you're not in those areas, you can take the initiative and organize your own. On their website, HOPE provides ideas for the types of actions you can host, fact-based rally graphics for download, and tips on spreading the word. Visit healthoverprofit.org and click the Actions tab for all this information, a map of the actions across the country, and more. The hashtag for the event is health for all. That's the word health, the number four, and the word all. Additionally, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area on March 29th, Hope is looking for volunteers to be part of their Medicare for All Lobby Day on Capitol Hill. They'll be distributing educational materials to all members of Congress, and they need your help. This event is listed on resistancecalendar.org, or you can get the direct link in our show notes. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if taking profit motives out of health insurance is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about joining the National Week of Action to demand Medicare for all via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. As Trump and the Republicans increase our defense budget while simultaneously proposing a health care plan that would cost people a fortune and possibly their lives, it's time to demand an answer to the question Bernie Sanders has been asking for years. Why do Republicans always have money for war, but not for those in need? Another one of the defenses that the GOP is currently using against uh, the fairly disastrous CBO estimate of the effects of their new health care bill is that this is simply phase one, step one in a three-part plan, and you can't understand the actual effect of the bill until we get all three parts. And so here you're going to see uh, both Tom Price and Paul Ryan uh, rolling out this new talking point. 
the, what the report looked at was only one third of our plan. And that's why you can't look at this in isolation. Oh, but that's not the whole plan. That's, that's the problem. Uh, they also ignored completely the other legislative activities that we'll be putting into place that will make certain that we have an insurance market that, that actually works. If you look at our entire package that the CBO didn't look at, not because they're bad folks, that's the way the rules work. They didn't look at all the regulations that we believe ought to go away. They didn't look at purchase across state lines or medical malpractice reform or all those things that, that in their totality create a system that actually works better. This is just part one of a three-part plan, and that's why I'm excited. Just this, they say, lowers premiums, stabilizes the market, gives people more choice and freedom. Part two is Tom Price at HHS brings more choice and competition, lets the states open up markets, which will lower prices even more. And part three are the other bills that we will be passing, interstate shopping across state lines, association health care plans to let people bulk buy insurance nationwide, medical liability reforms. What I'm encouraged is, once our reforms kick in, what the CBO is telling us is it's going to lower premiums. It will lower premiums 10%. It stabilizes the market. And you don't want to be in a spot where you're talking about how, hey, premiums are going down. A voiceover to an image showing a huge sum of money of people are about to lose access to health insurance. On Fox, Fox News, yeah. And by the way, they did lead in their first segment about the CBO. It was, new CBO report, deficit will be reduced by $366 billion. That was the most important takeaway from that report. By the way, Obamacare reduced deficit by about the same number. And what did they do? Oh my God, it's terrible, it's disastrous. Nobody was bragging about how it reduces deficit back when Obama did it. Okay, now uh, to this talking point, hmm, where did that come from? Nice little rabbit they just pulled out of a hat. I don't remember when they did the big launch. You remember in the press conference talking about three-part Monty no. and all the no. three different steps they were gonna do? No. I don't remember that. All of a sudden, oh yeah, yeah, this part might suck. But we have two other secret parts, mm -hmm. and those parts are going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. It's like you gave someone a gift, and you see the look on their face, and they're like, but that's just the first gift I have all the ones coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now, not everyone is buying this, and I don't just mean people sitting at this table right here. Uh, an up-and-coming Republican also not accepting this talking point. Here is Tom Cotton on with Hugh Hewitt. What can be done? I've talked to the speaker. I've talked to the leader. I've talked to uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers is on today. Mick Mulvaney, Tom Price. They all say it's a three-step dance because of the Senate reconciliation rule. So you know those rules. Working within the rules, how can the Senate improve its bill or how can the House send to the Senate a bill that fits within the guardrails of reconciliation and allows for 51 votes that improves the individual market? Hugh, there is no three-phase process. There is no three-step plan. That is just political talk. It's just politicians engaging in spin. This is, this is why. Step one is a bill that can pass with 51 votes in the Senate. That's what we're working on right now. Step two, as yet unwritten regulations by Tom Price, uh, which is going to be subject to court challenge and therefore perhaps the whims of the most liberal judge in America. But step three some mythical legislation in the future that is going to garner Democratic support and help us get over 60 votes in the Senate. If we had those Democratic votes, we wouldn't need three steps. We would just be doing that right now on this legislation altogether. That's why it's so important that we get this legislation right, because there is no step three, and step two is not completely under our control. So that's one of the most amazing things I've heard. 
And, and there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, that is a very conservative Republican who is very much controlled by the big donors. He's one of the biggest favorites of the big donors. And he just put a hatchet in the back of this plan. He's like, oh, your health care plan backed by Paul Ryan, Donald Trump, whatever. Bam! Like, oh, seek the long gone. Now, like, they got no chance of passing it in the Senate after Tom Cotton said that. The second reason why it's super surprising is because it was one of the most honest things I've ever heard from a Republican. Yeah. Where he's like, wait, if we had a mythical legislation that could pass the Senate and have Democrats support it, why didn't we release it in the beginning? Because, of course, we don't have one. That's very true. So what in the world is going on here? Why have the donors, because that's all Tom Cotton does. He is, yeah, he's one of the top guys that represents the donors in the Senate. Why have the donors sent out Tom Cotton to bury this plan? It is really interesting. Well, but I think part of it may be, and this is the part I can't figure out about the healthcare debate. It may be that uh, it's not clear where the insurance industry is. Mm-hmm. If you're the insurance industry, mm-hmm. there are things about Obamacare you don't like. There are things about Obamacare you do like. Yeah. You don't like the prohibition about throwing sick people off off coverage because of a pre-existing condition. You don't like that. You do like the mandate. You actually do like more people having to or deciding to buy your products. So it's it's never been clear to me who the Republicans, at least initially, think in the donor class that, that they are serving. It, mm. it, because this isn't necessarily great a repeal is not necessarily great for the insurance industry. Now maybe the theory is is that once we dismantle Obamacare, we take away the uh the prohibitions, we deregulate the insurance market even more so that there's this, you know, they call it uh, uh, uh insurance across state lines. Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, that sounds really great, right? It's insurance across state lines. Why can't the insurer, I live in Colorado. Why can't the insurer in Utah provide insurance to me in Colorado? Because the regulations exist, because what would end up happening is all the insurers would go to the most unregulated yeah. state possible, like a place like South Dakota or something like that, to provide the worst cover. They would all centralize there. So maybe the theory, the Republican theory, is sort of a two-step plan where we get rid of Obamacare, all the good things that people like in Obamacare, in order to get to a situation in which the insurance industry has even more unbridled control yeah, over the insurance market. But the interim step between there isn't necessarily great for the insurance industry or or the American public. Yeah. No, this is weird. Uh, normally, the Republicans don't do anything without the blessing of their uh, giant donors. And here you've got a very significant Republican split between Paul Ryan, who also is basically a water boy for the donors, and Tom Cotton. So maybe it's two different sets of donors. Like, or, or that, look, it, it, it could be that, that people like Tom Cotton are legitimately afraid politically of Actually, throwing millions of people off of insurance. That's true. I mean, and he's not the these people get these people do come up for election. I'm not saying they don't want to serve their donors, but they're caught between. between I have never seen them care about voters this far out from election in my life. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Because at the end of the election cycle, what do they do? They just inundate you with ads paid for by their donors, and they don't concentrate any of this. They usually, I mean, they're ready to do those giant tax cuts, which are terrible to voters, yeah, but, you Jay, know, for the rich, etc. People know if they used to have insurance and now they don't. That's my, an my, easy my transfer. Is, to, oh yeah, remember when I was had access to health care? My question that's going to hurt about the Democrats is you had Donald Trump. Who has said in the past he supports a single payer health care, mm-hmm. much like Medicare. 
is that where are the Democrats saying, okay, you want to repeal Obamacare? You want to replace Obamacare? Yes! Here's the most Bernie popular program in, in American history. Why don't we just have a one-page bill, that a one-line bill, that reduces the Medicare eligibility age to zero? Yeah. Okay, so... And, and Bernie is pushing for that in town halls on MSNBC every week now. So that's what I wanted to focus on at the end, too. So this is a great point by David. So... They have complete dissension within the Republican Party now. I mean, Trump is now attacking Paul Ryan. We'll explain that in a different story. Uh, Tom Cotton is attacking Ryan. They're all attacking each other. So, in the, and they don't have any good ideas and they can't figure out how to make this thing work because some of the more centrist Republicans go, no, you're going to throw all these people off of insurance and I'm going to get killed in the next election to your guys point, right? Uh, and the conservative Republicans are going, no. I want even more for my donors. This is not draconian enough, right? So in the middle of this mess, Democratic Party, you might want to listen to Bernie Sanders. What could be a stroke of genius is to go, hey, lucky for the American people, we do have a repeal of Obamacare. What? The, because every once in a while, a news anchor that got their talking points from the RNC says, how come the Democrats don't have an alternative? Well, first of all, they do. It's they called do. Obamacare. <laughs> okay, but second of they all, have alternatives to that. They have an alternative to Obamacare. It's single payer or Medicare for all. It's such a simple idea. We already have Medicare. We just extend it to everybody, as David just said. Problem solved. And by the way, Medicare also has the extra advantage of being the second most popular program right. in America. Right. So security is number one. Medicare is number two with about a three quarters popularity, 75%. Have you ever seen anything with a 75% popularity rating? Certainly not Trump or Clinton or any other a politician. So Democrats, wakey, wakey, Medicare for all except, right now. Except the failure of them to do that so far. And because you, you didn't mention one other point, which is that Medicare is a democratic program, right? A big D democratic party program. So very popular, a democratic party legacy program, uh, a, a solution basically that the rest of the industrialized world has adopted. So then the next question is, well, if you're not willing to do that, why are you not willing to offer that up? We should now look at find reflection. out if they've ever, if Democrats have ever gotten any money, to campaign donations from health insurance companies. I, I wonder. <laughs> look into it. Or the drug companies. I wonder yeah. if they've ever gotten it's money. Possible. It, it, it is possible. Yeah. It's possible. And if you remember, this came up during the Obamacare debate. They were going to lower the, there was a proposal out there to lower the Medicare age, uh, eligibility age to 55. And if you remember, the person who led the charge, this was when Democrats had 60 votes, it was Joe Lieberman. Led the Joe charge against, against that and yes. ended up killing that. Um, and so finally, what the Republicans are having trouble with is, well, how, you can't get all these things at once. Mm -hmm. How can you lower premiums, cover everybody, and lower the deficit all at the same time? There's actually only one proposal that does that. Medicare for all. We just heard clips today starting with Start Making Sense, in which an interesting reference was made to neocon Bill Crystal's prediction back in the 90s about the eventual march of progress on healthcare. The broadcast hosted a discussion about the ideological knots conservatives are now tied in to stick to their principles, even though their principles will kill people. The Trump cast had on Ezra Klein, who explained what Trump care is and how the process is going. Democracy Now! highlighted the massive transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich that Trump care represents. 
primary concerns discussed how Republicans backed themselves into a corner by demonizing the ACA so much that they have to repeal it in a panic rather than try to evolve it more slowly into something uh, more to their liking. The Zero Hour brought up how the conservative version of the individual mandate, which is called a continuing coverage provision in this case, recreates the exact same death spiral effect that plagued the ACA, only worse. The majority report argued the important point that conservatives are actually only having an ideological fight while they're pretending to have a policy fight. For fun, I threw in the old classic ad for the luck plan. Dan Carlin on Common Sense talked about how we got stuck with the very flawed Affordable Care Act. Our activism for today is in support of the upcoming week of action to demand Medicare for all. And finally, we just heard the Young Turks explain why the three-phase plan for the rollout of Trump Care is a total mirage. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And today we will not be hearing from you. I let the show go uh, quite long. Obviously, it's a very important uh, topic. I want to get in as much information as possible. And so the last thing I want to add today is that this is one of the most critical issues in which we cannot be blinded by data. I talked about this recently, that we can't just think that because all the data is on our side that we've already won the debate. They're not even debating about the same thing. They don't care if fewer people are going to be insured with their plans. What they care most about is bringing costs down for the government. Of course, they're wrong on that. We have the data on our side anyway, but they, they all they want to do is bring costs down and fulfill their ideological dreams. They care so much more about their ideology than about real-world outcomes. This is almost always the case. They decide based on their ideology what they want their policy to be, and then they attempt to reverse-engineer an excuse or a strategy or an explanation for why their policy makes more sense, which it almost never does because they don't attempt to create policies that solve problems. They attempt to create policies that fit their ideology and hope that it solves problems. It's a completely different idea. So when you go out into the world and you talk to people about healthcare, yes, all of the data is on the side of single payer or maybe some uninvented system that could be better than single payer. But that is not enough. The actual debate going on is an ideological debate about whether or not we should use the power of government to implement the best system that costs the least and has the best outcomes, or if ideology is more important than that, and that ideology should trump outcomes, and we should decide that no, government can't do that even though it could do it better, because it just shouldn't for reasons that I believe on faith. That is the debate happening right now. I'm sure we'll be getting back to voicemails in the next episode, so keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get 
so trained. 